1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, it says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather serve them, because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. In the last chapter, Paul has instructed Timothy about people in the church. Paul has spent time, remember in chapter 5, in verses 1 and 2, speaking about the older saints in the church. Widows in verses 3 through 16 in chapter 5. Church leaders in verses 17 through 25. Paul's instructions continue, but now he's going to actually be focusing on what might be thought of as problem groups. Well, what groups might cause problems with the church? Slaves in verses 1 and 2. False teachers in verses 3 through 5. And believe it or not, the rich in verses 6 through 10. In the ancient world of Rome, slavery was a deeply entrenched institution. Some scholars estimated that in the Roman Empire, there might have been as many as 60 million people who were slaves. Now, let me put that in perspective to you. There's different population estimates about the first century of Rome, but in that little circle that we call the Mediterranean, there could have been as many as 120 to 200 million people. That means that roughly from one-third to one-half of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. There were a growing number of freedmen. Those are former slaves. This means, again, almost certainly that no matter how you estimate it, about half of the Roman Empire were slaves. So you can imagine in the ancient world, many slaves found themselves in a place where they came into a right relationship with God in Christ. Slaves heard the gospel. They heard that their sins could be forgiven, that Jesus was the Lord, that he rose from the dead, and their hearts changed, and their lives changed. And so Paul is going to argue that slaves should exercise respect towards their unsaved masters so that they might respect the name of God and the word of God. Slaves with believing masters might be tempted to take advantage of their believing masters, and so Paul warns about that as well. The New Testament has a great deal of instructions about slaves. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8. The whole book of Philemon, the undercurrent of the story is about a runaway slave named Onesimus who, for whatever reason, runs away, finds himself in Rome, hears the gospel from Paul, and is gloriously saved. And you might think, well, wait a minute. 
why doesn't the Bible and the New Testament just simply come right out and condemn slavery as a sinful blight, as a moral outrage against God and humanity? That's a good question. We know that slavery was abolished in the United States in 1865. What you may not know is that slavery was abolished in 1804 in England. And you might think, well, again, what does this have to do with me? Francis Folks writes, quote, the principles of the whole section apply to employees and employers in every age, whether in the home or in business or in the state. So the reality is, is if you are employed, this means something, I'm going to suggest. If you're underemployed, it's going to mean something. If you're unemployed, it's going to mean something. If you employ someone, it should mean something to you because there are going to be principles that we should be able to glean from this section that's going to help us think about who we are, the culture in which we're living, and how to function in the workplace. Paul is going to speak to bondservants who are under the yoke in verse 1. I want to draw your attention to that word, yoke. It's the Greek word zugon. It means more than just something that you would place on your shoulders and push a burden in a particular direction. It came to be a metaphor or a euphemism for bondage, for enslavement. It was an instrument that weighed you down with a heavy weight. And I think that there's a reason why Paul uses this particular word. I'm going to suggest to you that Paul understood the oppressive nature of slavery. And so he begins by describing the duties to masters, think employers, in verse 1, let as many bond servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed. Paul's going to provide instruction, duties if you will, for the bond servants and then provide a reason for those duties. Bond servants in this context are slaves. So let's be very clear about what we mean by that. A slave is anyone who is in submission to someone else. And again, it's not a mutually agreed submission. It's, it's, a, it's a submission of necessity. And so how do we maintain a biblical work ethic in a world that rejects the biblical concepts of work? And see, remember, remember the setting. Paul is writing to a group of believers who are living in Ephesus, who have gathered together out of this group of people. There's a bunch of people who, are, who have been slaves and who are in fact masters. In other places, Paul is going to use the term kurios for master. In the New Testament, the word kurios often means lord or master, but here 
in verses 1 and 2, and in Titus chapter 2, verse 9, Paul uses an entirely different word. It's the word despotes. You might know that word because it's been used in our own language, a despot. Despotes was a word that is used one other place in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, and the six other times that it's, it's used in the Greek New Testament, it's actually a word that use, is used to describe the sovereign Lord, who is the Lord of all. The Greek scholar Thayer says that the word denoted absolute ownership and uncontrolled power. I learned today that the Spanish word for, for master is amo, it, it, it meant a person who had absolute ownership. Trench writes, quote, the despotes exercises a, a more unrestricted power, absolute domination, unquote. By the way, the ancient Greeks, in the, early on in their culture, they would use this word to describe the absolute rights of the gods to control their life. Later, the word came to be used for masters who owned their slaves. And so again, you should have a little sickness in your stomach right about now. And, and again, ask the question, well, then why doesn't Paul in the New Testament condemn this? And I think that part of the answer is that the Romans would have put down a slave revolt. There were already a history of slave revolts in the Roman Empire and the Roman culture. You probably heard of the slave Spartacus. In the early 60s, there was a movie about him uh, and the slave revolt that takes place about three generations. Actually, it's at this point in the New Testament, it's about 100 years earlier. But there was a slave revolt and the slaves revolted against the Roman masters and it was put down in the most brutal and vicious manner that you can imagine. Literally miles and miles and miles of slaves were crucified. And so I'm going to suggest to you that a slave revolt, particularly if it were perpetrated by Christians, is going to spell a, a disaster. Now, in the ancient world, slavery was horrible, but it wasn't like the slavery of the 16th, 17th, and 18th, and 19th centuries. Slaveries in America was race-based. In the Roman world, slavery was economically based. It wasn't racially motivated. You could have black slaves, white slaves, brown slaves, slaves from Egypt, slaves from Syria, slaves from from, from, from Judea, uh, people often became slaves usually by one of two ways. You were captured in war. The second way that you became a slave is that you sold yourself into slavery in order to satisfy a debt. Also in the ancient world, slaves weren't prohibited from having a trade or or learning to read and write. 
And if, I, if we could take all of you back and I could take you through Rome or we could go to Ephesus and we could march down the streets and you began to meet the slaves that were meeting at the church, you would find doctors like Dr. Luke. You could find lawyers and tutors and estate managers. You could find entertainers and musicians and librarians and personal secretaries. What the ancient view of slavery and the modern view of slavery had in common is that they were seen as living tools. The Roman statesman Cicero said, quote, slaves are the excrement of mankind, unquote. This gives you an idea that in the popular Roman mentality, slaves weren't considered like human beings. They were living tools. Contrast that with John Wesley's description of slavery in his own day. Quote, that execrable villainy, which is the scandal of religion, of England, and of human nature. Christians were screaming, shouting about the immorality of a human being being owned by another human being. And the most compelling argument that they gave was that people were made in the image of God. Slaves were bought. Slaves were sold. They were inherited. They were exchanged. A slave could be seized to pay their master's debts. So in that culture and in that world, if you owed someone, someone, just like if your house was being foreclosed or if your car was being repossessed, you could wake up one day and then all of a sudden you belong to somebody else. In the first century, slaves that were productive were often treated with leniency and rewarded. It wasn't unusual for a master to teach a slave his trade. It wasn't even unusual to form friendships. The Romans didn't view slaves, like I said, as people under the law, but the Roman Senate in AD 20, which is about 13 years before the death of Jesus, granted slaves accused of crimes the right to a trial. It also became quite common and popular for slaves at that particular point in, in human history to be able to work and purchase their own freedom. So in the ancient world, if Christians led a slave revolt, it would have left people dead, millions of people dead. Christians opposed anarchy. They promoted peace. And when Paul writes these words, you have to understand something, that Christians are already an oppressed minority. Persecution is already setting in. It's already bad enough that you're a Christian, but if you are a Christian who's promoting a revolt among the slaves, almost certainly you're going to be stamped out. The Life Application Bible adds some interesting notes. It says, quote, Christians were for a long time such a small minority that they would have been wiped out. Their allegiance to Christ was already highly suspicious. And many believers lost their lives for the love of Christ alone. The Romans would have crushed such a seditious power. Unquote. The, the writers add that Christians in the first century believed that the world was very much on the edge of extinction. 
You can imagine by reading the New Testament documents as you're reading this sense of urgency that's happening in the world that Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. You have to have a right relationship with God. You've got to get right with God. You need to have your sins forgiven. You need to turn from your sin. You need to receive Christ. So you can imagine the highest priority would have been the gospel. And the problem of personal sin was seen as far more important than social or cultural justice. So Paul will attack the problem by providing a biblical worldview on what it means to be human. Slavery is a satanic device that was meant to destroy people. Slavery is a satanic destructive system that meant, were meant to destroy people physically and emotionally and, and financially and eventually spiritually. And so his strategy is supernatural. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit. How are we going to deal with this horrible problem? It's going to require a change of mind. And it's going to require a change of heart. There are still vestiges of the wickedness that slavery has brought on our own culture and our own society. We live in a country that's very, very deeply divided. And there are people of color who have experienced unbelievable difficulties. And so it was asked to me today, even on the radio, well, what are we going to do? What, what do we have to do about these deeply entrenched problems that, that we face? And I'm going to suggest to you, again, just like in the first century, it's going to require a change of mind and a change of heart. We know that slavery was outlawed, but we also know that it continues to exist. In the past, it was motivated in the first century primarily by economics. In the not-too-distant past, it was motivated by race and economics. And again, in the present, it's also motivated by economics, race, religion, and sexual gratification. Don't kid yourself. In the Sudan, in Somalia, in parts of India, in Bangladesh, in parts of Asia, there are people who are enslaving other people right at this very moment. And they're doing it for economic reasons. They're doing it for racial re reasons. They're doing it for religious reasons. They're doing it for sexual gratification reasons. But you know what all of them have in common? They all fall short of a biblical worldview. All of them either trivialize or fail to take into consideration what the Bible says about what it means to be human, what it means to be made in the image of God, and what it means to be treated with dignity and respect. Abraham Lincoln famously said, when I, whenever I hear of anyone arguing for slavery, I feel a strong impulse to see it tried on him personally. Slavery has never been a good thing, and it never will be. Paul's, like I said, Holy Spirit strategy, we have to have a change of mind. We have to have a change of heart. 
And so he's going to lay down principles like honor and respect and love and justice to facilitate the collapse of institutional slavery. On my radio program today, I had a, a, a history teacher on, and we were talking about the problem of slavery. And I said to him, do you know how the problem of slavery was eventually resolved in the Roman Empire? He said, my specialty is American history. He goes, I'm going to leave that to you. And I go, I'll tell you how it collapsed. In the, in the third century, there was a vicious horror of an emperor named Diocletian. He was an emperor who was committed to destroying Christians and Christianity. But he also freed the slaves. But not for the reason that you might think. Remember, by this time, half of the empire are slaves. And you know what slaves didn't do? They didn't pay taxes. And they were on the verge of an economic collapse. And so with the single stroke of a pen, Diocletian freed all of the slaves and doubled the tax income revenue base. And it meant that the Roman Empire was able to go forward for 400 more years. But it wasn't anything noble. It wasn't because the dignity of what it means to be made in the image of God was promoted by Diocletian. It was purely economic. And of course, Paul will note that when a slave receives Jesus as their savior, there's an immediate spiritual equality among all believers. Remember in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, remember, this, this passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, isn't for a moment uh, differentiate or, or suggesting that there's no such thing as a Jew or that there's no such thing as a Greek or there's no such thing as a slave, that there's no such thing as a free person, that there's no such thing as a male and that there's no such thing as a female. What he's arguing is that these distinctions become irrelevant spiritually because you've been born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has changed you. Think about what a radical statement that is. Think about how radical it is to say God in Christ has made you all equally liberated before the Father in love. Your sin is forgiven and you've been reconciled to him. In the Expositor's Greek Testament, there's a summary that's offered about how Christianity went about destroying slavery. It, the writer says, quote, here as elsewhere in the New Testament, slavery is accepted as an existing institution which is neither formally condemned or approved. There is nothing to prompt revolutionary action or to encourage repudiation of the position. The institution is left to be undermined and removed by the gradual operation of the great Christian principles of the equality of men in the sight of God, the common Christian brotherhood, the spiritual freedom of the Christian man, the lordship of Christ to which every other lordship is subordinate. So what was the result? The New Testament writers were going to make it impossible 
for Christian slave owners to continue in abusive behavior or refusing to take into consideration what God has done in Christ spiritually. Do you know why this is important? Because in this culture, in this society, imagine the believers in Ephesus begin to gather and they begin to pray and they begin to worship and then all of a sudden it becomes quite clear that one of the people in the group who is a slave, that God's calling him to be the pastor of the church, he is a, a gifted person who God has gifted and equipped in order to be the leader of the church and now the slave is the one who is the servant to the entire church and there's the master sitting in the seat and the master's going wait a minute I, I own you you're my tool but all of a sudden there's this shift that begins to take place in mind and in heart and what does this have to do with us and what does it have to do with employment or employees well again I think we're going to be able to apply some of these things to ourselves and what it means to work in the workplace. Paul's context is slaves and masters. But in our culture and society, and again, you don't have to. You don't have to participate if you, you don't want to. But if you want to, by all means, participate. How many of you have a job? Raise your hand. Look around. How many of you have a job because you have to have a job? One of you. How many of you would quit your job if you had $10 million and you could live off the interest? Look at all the hands go up. Look at all the hands go up. The reason why this becomes important is it gives us an opportunity to not just think about our work and what we do, but to think about our work from God's perspective, from a biblical perspective. And so it's okay for you to ask yourself this question. How do I see myself as a person who works? Is, is work a punishment for debt? Is it a necessary evil? Or do you see something, that work is something that's allowed by God and ordained by God and it's meant to enrich you and others in what it is that God's called you to do. And so now, having said all of that, we get to go to verse number two. Our duties to Christian masters. Look what it says, and those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. What was Timothy to teach and exhort? He's to teach and exhort, I'm going to suggest to you what it says in verse 1. But I'm also going to suggest to you that it's going to include once again, everything that Timothy or Paul has taught Timothy in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5. Whatever else it means, Paul expects Timothy to think about what Paul is saying and to implement it in the church. 
what's the minimum it has to mean? Slaves are to respect and honor their masters. Now again, Paul doesn't see honoring and respecting masters as a means to support the evil institution of slavery, but rather as a way to avoid reproach for the gospel. So you can imagine if that's the case, if the Bible is asking you to honor and respect your employer, it isn't because the Bible is asking you to necessarily respect what your employer does, but rather calling you to give honor to whom honor is due. Paul's advice Give greater service to believing masters, knowing that faithfulness bears fruit. So Paul's argument is, again, in order to contrast the slave who's, who, who's thinking in their, in their mind or in their heart, I don't have to do what is required of me because my master is a Christian and shouldn't have that expectation. And Paul's going to refute that. Do you have the privilege of working for a Christian employer? Well, if you do, it isn't supposed to be an excuse to reduce your effort. Paul is going to say, this should cause you to increase your effort. Again, Paul seems to think that the greatest temptation that the Christian slave faced with a believing master was to despise the master. Slaves weren't to use Christ as an excuse for dishonor or disrespect. And we, we can never use God, Christ, the Bible as an excuse for not doing our job and doing it appropriately and doing it enthusiastically, and doing it with competence. So Paul uses the term believing masters. And when he uses the term believing masters, we're left with the impression that he means a master who is faithful to Christ and the things of Christ and the teachings of Christ. Why would we come to that conclusion? Because he's also going to refer to him as beloved that is a person who benefits. They're beloved and they benefit from the slave service. And so you can imagine that in the ancient world, people might find excuses not to work or slack off in their work. That a believing master should understand and be less likely to reprimand, discipline, punish bad behavior. You might work for an employer who happens to be a Christian and it's your job to answer phones or to do whatever it is that you're doing. And you happen to be talking to someone at work and you're talking about the Bible and you're talking about Jesus and, and and you're talking about what would otherwise be good God-honoring stuff. And your, and your employer comes to you and says, go back to work. I thought you were a Christian. We're, can't you see our Bibles open and we're talking about Jesus? I pay you to sell cars. I pay you to make a widget. I pay you to do whatever it is that I pay you to do. Now don't get me wrong. 
Are there times, appropriate times, on your down times, on your break times? Are there times when you can be a witness and do Christian things wherever it is that you happen to be working? Of course, but you can never use Christ and Christianity as an excuse to do anything other than a great job. By the way, does it shock you or surprise you that in the ancient world, people found excuses for not doing a great job. This should remind you of something, yeah, that, that people in every age and in every generation have difficulties. Now, again, I want you to imagine a world where the master and the slave attend the same church. Is it possible that that's going to create a conflict? Now imagine you're at a church and you work and your boss shows up at your church. And you look at your boss and you go, I had no idea. You are a Christian? Or worse, your boss looks at you and said, I had no idea that you were a Christian. You know, I think that there's an ongoing principle that we can glean. If the people closest to you don't know that you're a Christian, you have every reason to believe that you may not be a Christian. We look at the testimony of Scripture and we discover something about what the Bible has to say about work. We know that work and employment is ordained by God. You might be thinking, well, wait a minute, I thought work was a part of the curse. No. A careful reading of Genesis chapter 1, remember it says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you guys who have been to Sunday school did the first day of creation and the second day of creation. Fast forward to the sixth day of creation. And on the seventh day of creation, what did God do? He rested. He ceased from his work. I know what you're thinking. You mean God worked? Yes. And you're made in the image of God? Yes. God created you in such a way that there's something inside of you that wants to be productive and create and do wonderful things. And by the way, he ceases from his labor in Genesis chapter 2 verse 1. And you might think, okay, since you brought it up, I thought, again, work was a curse. No, human beings are placed in the Garden of Eden prior to the curse in chapter 2, verse 15. Read it for yourself. To tend and keep it. Human beings are placed in this beautiful setting. Because I think God has placed within us a desire to love him and serve him and, and do it by a practical expression. I told my son Anthony, Anthony, what do you want to do? And Anthony said, I love to cook. And I said, guess what, Anthony? You can cook for Jesus. I believe in delight-directed work where... Imagine, um, uh, just think of something in your mind that you would do for free and then find someone stupid enough to pay you real money to do it. I know. See, the, the, okay, it's, 
clicking inside. You go, what would I do for free if I could find someone stupid enough to pay me to do it? And that's what you should do. Because if you love what you're doing, you love painting, you love creating, you love teaching, you love preaching, it's really not work. It is true that in the fall, God told Adam, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. And you're going, I knew it. I knew it was in there. It's a curse. You read it for yourself. You're going to have to work like a dog and then you're going to die. Well, actually, let's reread the verse. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. I'm going to suggest to you, what if the passage means, for all intents and purposes, you're going to work. And you're going to work till you die. But I don't think that it means that you work and your work kills you. That's not the point of the passage. We're meant to serve. And we're meant to to serve in such a way that it brings satisfaction. The writer of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 verse 24 intimates that a person can do nothing better than find satisfaction in his work. This too I see is from the hand of God, for without him who can eat or find enjoyment? In Ecclesiastes chapter 9 verse 10 we read, Whatsoever your hand finds to do, do it. With all your might. So we discover that work serves several functions. Number one, to provide income, money, resources, supplies, to meet the basic necessities of life, but also to provide a certain quality of life and also to provide a certain satisfaction in life. And I'm going to suggest to you that the New Testament even goes one step further. It isn't just simply to meet the necessities of life. Clearly the Bible does say if you don't work, you don't eat. But I'm going to suggest to you that the New Testament even goes one step further and it says that we work in order to provide help for others and to glorify the Lord in the work of the Lord. And so Paul reminds slaves that they're not to rebel, they're not to run away, they're not to act with insolence. And they're, they're to work. Not as little as possible, but as much as possible. And by the way, I'll give you an interesting little historical side note. In the ancient world of the first century, when slaves would come up for auction, and it was discovered that the, that the, that the slave before them was a Christian, the employee or the employer would pay 20 to 30% more for Christian slaves than non-Christian slaves. Do you know why? Because they had, an, they had a reputation for honesty, integrity, faithfulness, and commitment. My oldest son, Miguel, his first job out of high school is he went to work for the Shane Company. The Shane Company is a place where they say sell gold, jewels, and diamonds. 
He was 18 years old, and he never, ever had a full-time job up, up until that point. This was the very first job he ever applied for. His job, it was to catalog the resources in their vault, which was in excess of $40 million. You know why they hired him? Because he was honest. By the way, if you have a person who's in charge of $40 million worth of diamonds and jewels, what's the number one thing that you're looking for from your employee? Is it honesty? Is it integrity? Is it faithfulness? When he was going for the job, when the employer asked him, why should I hire you? His answer was, because I swear to you, I'll never steal from you, ever. You see, Christians are supposed to enjoy a reputation for honesty, fidelity, and integrity. So again, Paul's instructions seem to focus on honoring God. We're going to do this so that we can honor God. Why else are we doing it? So that we can witness for Christ. Why else are we doing it? So that we can bring glory to the gospel. If slaves are to serve their masters honestly, in obedience and integrity, it means that you're going to have to act with honesty and integrity. So Paul's instructions help us to understand that work isn't just simply work. It's obedience to the Lord. Work should be honorable, legal, biblical, ethical. I've told you guys before, my father on his income tax return under occupation, he would write, legitimate businessman. And I would say, Dad, that's kind of a red flag. He goes, but it's true, it's 100% legit. Well, what do you want from me? If you have to actually spell it out, the chances are that's going to bring about suspicion. Paul, writing to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 31, says, Therefore, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do it to the glory of God. Let me close with this. Work becomes worship when it's done for Christ. Work becomes worship when it's done for Christ. John Burroughs writes, For anything worth having, one must pay the price. And the price is always work, patience, love, sacrifice, unquote. Someone wrote, I cannot work my soul to save, for that my Lord hath done, but I will work like any slave for the love of God's dear Son. You can't work your way to heaven. You're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. But you can work in such a way that you can speak about heaven and the God of heaven and the Savior in heaven because it's reflected in your life, honesty, integrity, fidelity. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, thanks for this time. And again, Lord, I pray, I pray for each and every person who's listening. Some who are listening online or they're listening on the internet, Lord, and they're hurt and they're unemployed or they're underemployed or they're living in this financial pit of darkness, slaves to debt, slaves to passion, slaves to the past. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would free them and that you would give them the opportunity to experience joy and peace, to repay their debts, and then to make an income that will honor you and please you and that will satisfy them and that they'll be able to look around them and see people in need and people who need help and that you will be able to bless them because of the supernatural, wonderful, abundant provision that you've made. And again, Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit this to, the time to you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand.